0: Welcome back to Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. I'm personal financial planner, columnist, and financial therapist, Rick Kaler. Research tells us that 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. For nearly four decades, I've been helping people make better money decisions. So what makes my financial worldview different from most financial experts? I blend the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Good money decisions are not just about the money. So let's get started with today's episode. Welcome back to another edition. I thought it'd be interesting to talk on this segment about something that uh, we coined or observed, oh heck, must be maybe 15 years ago in our work and research, which we termed money disorders. And... There's actually, well, I think initially, we called them uh, dysfunctional money behaviors. And then as our work progressed, we decided dysfunctional really wasn't a a technical mental health term. And we broke them into money disorders and problematic money behaviors. And I'll explain a little bit. And more as to why. Let's just talk first a little bit about how a money disorder is formed and a, whether it's a problematic behavior or money disorder doesn't matter. These are behaviors. And so what happens is there's some type of uh, trauma or drama that happens in our life. Typically, this is when we're young. Typically, it's when we really have no filters. We have no way of knowing it's even a trauma. We have no way of judging that this is appropriate or inappropriate, but we experience some type of trauma. And and as I explained in a previous podcast, trauma is on a continuum. There can be traumas that on a one to 10 are one, and traumas that are 10. A one, if it just happens once, Probably is not going to hang around or really impact us. A ten could impact us absolutely. Happen once and and impact us for the rest of our life. But you could have a series of two threes or four traumas that happen over and over and over again. You know, maybe hundreds, thousands of times. That will form quite what they call a complex trauma. So in some way we experience a trauma. It can be around money or it can not be around money, which it's real interesting. Um, I I don't have a percentage on this, but it's just as common to find a money behavior, a money disorder that's problematic, that is uh, hurtful, that actually has its roots in something that was not monetary to speak of, so. So we experience a trauma and then we make up a story. We rationalize why this is normal. We rationalize it, I need to not do this. Uh, in IFS language, parts are, are uh, put into an extreme role because of the wounding. Typically with the trauma, there's shame, hurt, sadness, grief, there's typically some intentional emotions and the parts of us, our coping mechanisms, our, our ego defend around this. And they'll come up with an, a, sto- a story or a behavior or something that says when this happens or to keep this from happening, here's what I need to do because this is obviously the story. So we learn these lessons that trauma may happen over and over. The story gets reinforced, the lessons get reinforced, and from that, there is a universal truth that is taken from that. And uh, in our work, we often call these money scripts. And there are literally an unlimited number of money scripts most of us have 50 to 200 really predominant ones that operate 24-7. In most cases, they're undiscovered subconscious until we take time out to figure out what our systems believe about money. So these money scripts then turn into habitual behaviors, right? So we um, organize our behaviors around the belief system. And this is why you've heard me say so many times that there is no illogical behavior around money. Because underlying that seemingly illogical behavior is a perfectly logical money script. It's a perfectly logical response to the traumas, the stories we make up, and the money script. So this is is a real important foundation to understanding where these money disorders come from and problematic money behaviors. So let's uh, take a look at some of the ones that we identified in our early work. I think uh, these might have been tweaked a little bit over time, but uh, pretty much are intact. And we break them into money disorders and problematic money behaviors because the money disorders have their roots. They, they can be found in some form or fashion in the DSM-5. Now the DSM-5 is kind of the, um, the, the Bible of determining disorders in the mental health field. The group of therapists and psychologists I hang around with don't have a high regard for the DSM-5. The DSM-5 is very medical and the, um, the issue that many, many of your uh, therapists have is they're not treating a disorder, they're treating a person, and they're working with a person, and they really don't want to label a person by their disorders. And where the DSM-5 really becomes necessary is when there's insurance involved in reimbursing uh, the therapist for their services. Insurance requires a diagnosis of some type, so many of the um, uh, therapists I know are what's called private pay and so they don't take insurance and the dSM5 just has really not much um, importance, I would say as far as um, uh, in their practices so. That's my own personal bias. Is um, I kind of agree with all the therapists and psychologists that feel diagnosing people there's not it's really possibly not even healthy. All right. So, but anyway, not everybody agrees with that. So we like to give a little uh, scientific foundation for some of these. And the first one would be workaholism. Workaholism is one of my system's drug of choice. I think it's pretty common. And it's one of the disorders that uh, you really can get a lot of kudos for. (laughs) You can can be well paid for it, right? But the problem with workaholism is it just crowds out relationships. I know at the peak of my workaholism, I was probably working about 80 hours a week and it was one of the contributing factors to the dissolution of my first marriage. So it's one of the looking good disorders It can end up being very, very harmful. Compulsive buying is another one. Onomania, it actually has a, a term, onomania, which is just what it sounds like, just buying, 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 buying. Gambling is one of the disorders which we're not talking about going out and enjoying yourself. I live in Rapid City, South Dakota. We have Deadwood, South Dakota, nearby, which has uh, uh, legal gambling. So we're not talking about going up to Deadwood for an evening and you put a cap of $50 on what you're going to lose, and it's the night's entertainment. We're not talking about that. We're talking about compulsive, addictive gambling that actually harms or threatens a person's financial well-being. Hoarding is another. Again, hoarding isn't necessarily collecting things. It's um, hoarding things to the point that you can barely get through someone's house or your own house, just a deep-seated fear, and becomes very disruptive to your lifestyle and relationships. And then the final one is financial dependence, where a person becomes dependent upon anything or any organization for their livelihood. I think of financial dependence, probably the most classic case, is a child who remains dependent upon parents for well into adulthood for their livelihood or their their sustenance. It can also be dependency on uh, a government, any type of financial dependency that can be deemed uh, where a person is trapped or it's uh, it's really unhealthy for the person. So these are the behaviors. Now what I'm not doing in this segment is giving you any uh, ideas yet on how you overcome these behaviors, these disorders. Uh, My intent, basically, uh, today is to just expose these to you and with the idea of, of, as I talk about them, to see which of these may be present in your life. Quite frankly, I don't think I've ever met somebody that didn't have a money disorder or problematic money behavior. And truly, if you have none of these, I would be very interested in hearing from you. (laughs) We may come to one that might explain why you don't have any of these. Let's just talk about it, because it's the first one in problematic money behaviors. It's called financial denial, right? So if you say, "I, I don't have any of those, maybe that's the first place to explore is uh, do you just have a part of yourself that is unwilling to take inventory or look at it or feel so much shame in admitting that you have any type of uh, problematic money to behavior disorder that it just won't let you go there. So. That's kind of what financial den- denial is. is um, just a complete. It's like it's like a wall. It's like a, a sheet that's thrown over us where we just can't see, and uh, we don't know. I guess in a, it's not that we don't know that we don't what we don't know. It's that we don't want to see what what is there. We don't want to look at the man behind the curtain. So that is a, a definite problematic money behavior because if we're unwilling to look, if we're unwilling to admit that we may have behaviors in search for these because of the huge amount of shame that's associated with that, oh, wow, our progress is stopped at uh, really becoming well. And of course, somebody in denial does, thinks they're well and sees no reason to press on and maybe uh, have a... A harder look. What would be the clue that a person might need to take a harder look at, at themselves? Well, it would be if there's some type of financial pain or some type of things that financially aren't going right or continual excuses that are being made for things that don't go right. Especially pointing the finger at everybody else and being in a place of a victim financial victim, which uh, would be classic in uh, financial dis- denial. It's everybody else's fault, it's society's fault, it's my employer's fault. I once had a friend, he went to work for somebody, and boss was terrible, and he quit that job and went to work for another company, and ran into another terrible boss. He quit that job and went to work for another company, that boss was terrible, and After about five rounds of this, it became pretty clear that it wasn't the boss that was the problem. (laughs) So uh, trailheads like that in your life might give a clue to there's some financial denial going on. Another problematic money behavior that I really wrestled with when I first considered this is underspending. Now. This is uh, the, the Financial Wisdom of Ebenezer Scrooge, which is a book I co-wrote with the Claunces. We took a look at um, Ebenezer Scrooge, who is a classic underspender. We're not talking about healthy frugality. We're not talking about living on less than you make, which is necessary to build wealth. We are talking about underspending to the point that a person's safety becomes at risk. I remember a client it was a classic underspender in retirement could have been spending three times what they were in visiting their house they had boards in their deck that were uh, loose they had uh, wires that were exposed they were starting to have trouble driving and they would not get a newer car that uh, would have all sorts of safety fi- features in fact today Right? We can buy a Tesla that has uh, an element of uh, self-driving to it. So, And they could have afforded all of this. So that is classic underspending to where you underspend to the point of really hurting yourself. I mean, it could be to the point of not uh, spending for leisure, not spending for things that you really enjoy. So this is a hurtful underspending. And then, of course, on the other side of that, we have overspending, which is an epidemic in the United States. Somewhere around 70-80% of people would have to borrow money or sell something to come up with $1,000. I think uh, the last time I looked, in the, the these stats could be about five years old, that uh, only 9% of Americans could or had $100,000 <coughs> liquid saved in. Retirement plans or taxable accounts or something like that. So, overspending is a really uh, almost epidemic. Financial enabling, remember we talked about dependence being one of the disorders? Well, financial enabling is on the other side of dependence. That classically would be the parent who keeps giving, 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 giving to the kids. And I could tell you a bunch of war stories of parents who just kept giving to their kids to the point they didn't even need to get jobs. And it's hurtful, oftentimes hurtful to the child, and it's uh, hurtful to the parent as well. This can come out of a load of shame and guilt, uh, maybe guilt around the child's upbringing and then trying to make it all right by giving them money in adulthood the causes can be huge just know if if you chronically give money to a child this could be a sign of financial enabling we're not talking about once you gave a child ten thousand dollars and you've never done that again or or something of that fact but we're talking about could be a child that is always in need of money and Perhaps the parent is always there to bail the kid out. That would be classic. There's a vow of poverty. That is um, a behavior that would say money is unimportant and actually there's a spiritual, emotional character quality uh, and a positive quality that I am Taking this, this this vow of poverty, it would almost kind of be a little bit around underspending, but it comes with a, a different intent. You're not the intent is not saving money or building money. The a vow of poverty probably you've given away all your money. Uh, it, it can it can get an air of spiritual uh, superiority. And some of the the areas I run in therapists may call this spiritual escape. Not necessarily. It doesn't mean everybody with spiritual escape is taking on about poverty. But it's um, often seen, quite frankly, in the helping professions, mental health professions, in the clergy, ministry, some of these areas. Then there's financial enmeshment. This is inappropriate boundaries, inappropriate uh, sharing of financial information and problems with children. And this can uh, cause a number of of problems, obviously. Think of it as information that the adult needs to be talking to another adult about, not an 8-year-old, a 6-year-old, a 12-year-old, etc. Then there's squandering of sudden windfalls. A uh, big one, uh, whether it's an inheritance, lottery, signing bonus, any type of large amount of money that comes a person's way, it's more often than not this money is squandered. And there's re- research out there that shows, you know, in three, four, five, seven years, a lot of these uh, windfalls are, are gone. And then finally, the last one is poor financial decisions, which can really (laughs) encompass a lot of things. But again, we're not talking about a poor financial decision. The average millionaire makes, I think it's 3.8, maybe it's 3.1, really bad financial decisions in their life. The average non-millionaire makes 1.6, all right? So people that accumulate wealth make Twice the bad decisions of people who don't accumulate wealth. So it's not about making a few bad decisions. I think, why is that? Well, I think it's necessary to take some risk, right? If you're going to accumulate wealth. But we're talking about here chronic bad decisions. Bad decision after bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. All right? So if you see that in yourself, again, this is a problematic money behavior. So those are the behaviors, and let me just say, what underlies all of these behaviors is some type of emotional wounding, some type of pain, because all of these behaviors are a way to try and medicate, resist, or keep the trauma or the pain encapsulated or from happening again. So the key to uh, addressing and actually modifying, uh, turning these behaviors around to uh, helpful behaviors is really understanding how they formed, where they came from, and what all those stories are that were made up. And really getting curious with those parts of us that. That were wounded, so that we can uh, really understand and address this. And that's a whole nother session episode that we will get to. So, so thanks for joining me. We'll see you again. Thanks for joining me, Rick Kaler, for another episode of Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. This is where I combine the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Remember, every financial behavior, whether it appears illogical to you or others, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs, feelings, and thoughts. Sign up for my weekly blog at financialawakenings.com. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode.